Today's scripture reading is from Philippians 3, 7 through 14. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so, somehow, attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead— I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. There's sometimes where I'm kind of uh, amazed by um, Brian's selection of music for medleys. Um, wasn't that a delightful combination of three unbelievable songs? Lamb of God, I come. Have thy own way, Lord. Have thy no way. You're the potter. I'm the clay. And then ending with, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And all the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Profound words uh, set to music, and um, thank you. It's a blessing. I've mentioned um, in this series uh, on Paul's epistles several times, a preacher or an interpreter is always trying to get behind the text. You're trying to understand what the writer is saying, and there's, there's many routes to that. But I'd like to begin with an image today concerning this text, which is the book of Philippians. My suggestion is that the best way for for us to understand Philippians, or at least one way, is to think of this picture. Think of a window, a small window, and look inside it. And as you look inside that small window, what you will see is this. An old man, stooped by age, and perhaps even by disability. An old man who's had a hard life. He's been beaten multiple times. He's gone without food many times. He's suffered shipwreck more than once. You look inside this window and the stooped figure you see is the Apostle Paul. What's more, this man, the Apostle Paul, ought to be a celebrity. 
a Christian celebrity. He ought to be bigger than Billy Graham or anybody else. But he's in a prison. Prior to this, he's been kept in prison for two years in Caesarea without a trial. Now he's been held in Caesar's jail for an unknown amount of time. He has no idea how long he's going to be there or what the outcome's going to be. Many of the churches he founded, many of the churches he founded, are in trouble and distress. As a matter of fact, most of his friends have deserted him. On one occasion, one of the churches sent an emissary to find Paul, and he couldn't even find him. He looked for the longest time. Nobody knew where the man was. And there were churches all around Rome that should have known. He eventually found him. Paul's name, while he's in prison, is being maligned. Not by Caesar, because Caesar couldn't have cared less about Paul. Only that he was an annoyance. His name is being maligned by the Christians who call themselves brothers and sisters in Christ with Paul. To put it more specifically, it's more than likely that his name is being maligned by pastors all over the Roman Empire. Some of them have bad intentions and others of them don't. Worst of all, this is Paul. This is the gallivanting apostle who wants more than anything else in the world to go as far and wide as he can to establish the church of Jesus Christ. And to leave elders and deacons behind to see those churches grow and flourish. That's what he's about. That's what he wants to do. And where is he? He's confined to a prison. Nothing could be worse for the spirit of that man than prison. But in prison, his heart is soaring. And the reason we know is from that prison, he writes this epistle. And the epistle has been universally described by people for centuries as the epistle of joy. How in the world is his heart soaring when he's in the midst of these circumstances? I want to give you three reasons that I think Paul's heart soars in the midst of all of this. So give them to you quickly and then we'll speak with them. First, he has a macro perspective. Not a micro perspective, but a macro perspective. Second, he has a daily practice. He moves from a macro perspective and he gets down in the weeds and he's got a daily practice. And third, he has a personal relationship. A macro perspective, a daily practice, and a personal relationship. You know what Paul says early on in this epistle when he's describing to those who are reading his epistle how tough things are? 
He begins by saying this, I thank my God every time I remember you in all my prayers for you. I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Why am I soaring with joy, says Paul? Even though I planted a church where you are and so many of the churches that I planted are are falling apart and so many outside pressures are upon me, why am I so full of joy? Here's why I'm full of joy. Because I did what God called me to do. And the rest is up to Him. God's purposes cannot be thwarted. When I'm called to do what God calls me to do, I know this, God's going to complete the job. And God called me to deliver this gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ to you. And I don't worry because God is going to complete that gospel in you. Not me. I'm not there. But God will do it. Wow, was that a macro perspective? Okay, insert the word eternal perspective if you like. He sees beyond his circumstances. He sees beyond the trouble. And he pins words like this. Then later on, when he's talking about his circumstances, he says to them this. Now, I want you to know, brothers, all still in the first chapter, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. What has happened to me, being in jail for the last two years and not having any idea when I'm going to get out and not knowing whether or not a trial has been set on my behalf and not knowing whether or not I'm going to die in this prison or die outside as a martyr, not knowing any of those things. (laughs) All this has happened to serve the purposes of the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard, center Rome, place of huge power in the ancient world. It has become known throughout the entire palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Because of my chains, most of the brothers and the Lord have become encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. Don't worry about me. God's in charge. No matter what happens, it happens for good. That's a macro perspective. It's an eternal perspective. It's what you might call a mountaintop perspective, right? One of the reasons I love to fly, though I'm not a pilot and I'll never do that, I like seeing the world from above. Something happens to me when I'm in an airplane and I look out that window. Problems come into perspective in a new kind of way. Don't ask me why. It's almost a spiritual experience. The world looks so enormous and the people look so tiny. And I look at the town that I left and I see a pattern of beauty in terms of interconnectedness that's not lodged in my head. So call me weird. I love to look at the interstate systems. I like seeing the clover leaf. 
I like seeing how 465 connects to 65 and 70 runs through the city. I know it's there, but when I fly, I see it. It's a perspective from above. It's also a perspective on life. And on occasion, we get it, don't we? On occasion, we look down from the mountaintop that God gives us and we see God's perspective on our reality. But it's fleeting. It just slips through our grasp and we forget it. And we're back down in the weeds, believing somehow it's all up to us. I think Paul's example here helps us to embrace the promise. And helps us to trust the perspective by faith. When you're not in the airplane, when you're not on the mountaintop, you recall what you know by faith. That God is in control. I, again, am not a pilot and never will be one. But this perspective, which is a macro, eternal perspective, is something you've got to hold on to when the storms come. Not unlike a pilot trusts and has faith in his instruments. When he or she can see nothing because of the storm. Paul says, I can't tell you all the intricate details of how this is all working out, but I can tell you this. It's all working out by God's design. And I get to be a part of it. How about that? Paul has a macro or eternal perspective. But Paul also has a daily practice. You know what's so important about the daily practice? It's not what we manipulate about about the current events. The importance of the daily practice is it gives us an opportunity to apply the eternal perspective. It gives us an opportunity to make decisions based on what we know in a larger framework. Not just making decisions based on what we know right now. Keeping it practical and having an eternal focus are not contradictory to one another. They're complementary. Paul gives, uh, on one occasion in this same book, a wonderful description about how you should live your daily practice. Remember these words? Your attitude, let me insert the word daily, daily should be that which is the same as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped but made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him a name that's above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I tell you, says Paul, 
The way to keep this eternal perspective tomorrow is to exercise humility in the midst of life. Don't consider yourself more lofty than you ought to. Don't think you have it all figured out. Don't pretend like you're the center of the world. Don't fool yourself into thinking that you're the most important thing. In your daily exercise, practice this. Submit to God and His mysterious plan. Trust by faith God's mysterious plan. And walk humbly with Him. Well, you know the best example of that, right? He just gave it to us. It was Jesus. Don't ask me to unpack the complexities of God in Jesus Christ. But there's something about the narrative of the Gospels that gives us an indication that Jesus was struggling to understand the will of the Father just the way we are. At least as to His human nature. Such that when He comes down to the end, He says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And before that in the garden, He says, Take this cup away, please. Do you think He was just acting? I don't think so. I think He was walking through the same travail of soul that each of us walked through in our lives. And humbly submitting to the mysterious plan of God, His heavenly Father. Your attitude, says Paul, tomorrow should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. You know what else the daily practice means? It doesn't mean just being humble and passively trusting God. It means that you've got work to do. Or again, to put it in Paul's words from Philippians, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, not because it's all up to you. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling for a wonderful preposition, for it is God who works in you to do His will, to work His plan, to affect His purposes. God's at work. Get busy working yourself. God has a plan. You've got an opportunity to join it. Don't be lackadaisical. Don't be passive. Don't just say, oh, I understand God's in control of everything. That's a wonderful phrase. Now get busy. Do the work that God has called you to do. He describes it with other words. Philippians has become, this just this week, used to be Ephesians. It's now become my favorite book. (laughs) It's just so packed full of incredible advice. In the context of the daily practice, he also says this, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on to the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Do you understand the reality of the eternal macro perspective and the daily practice fused together in those words? I see heaven out there. I realize that I'm made for the purpose of living with God and on the way I'm made for the purpose of serving God right here, right now. So I work out my own salvation. I strain towards the mark of my high calling in Christ Jesus. 
An eternal perspective uh, requires a constant refocus on this particular life, doesn't it? The eternal perspective cries out to us to focus on today. And then on another occasion, Paul says, this daily practice of exercising the eternal macro perspective looks like this. I've lived a long time. I've gone through a whole lot. As a matter of fact, I know what it means to be in need. I know what it means to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. Whether well-fed or hungry, whether plenty or in want, I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. Isn't that an interesting placement of a phrase that we often extract for dubious purposes? It's in the context of suffering. It's in the context of the ups and downs of life. I can do all things through Christ who gives me the strength in the middle of the everyday discipline of following you when it's hard and when it's good. Christ gives me the strength. And why can He be so confident? Again, another phrase from Philippians. Because I know my God will supply all your needs according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. I have the eternal perspective of a God who supplies all my needs so I can be humble. I can work out my own salvation. I can be content in plenty or in want. It makes no difference. That's my daily practice, the application of my eternal perspective. The third thing I see in Paul's uh, epistle to the Philippians is a personal relationship. It'd be one thing to leave it at the level of uh, a theoretical perspective, right? You could say, let's just get your perspective now. Reorient your world around this and you'll be okay. That's not what Paul says. It's not that easy. And it's much better than that. Yes, he does have a macro, eternal perspective. Yes, he does have a daily practice. But he also has a personal relationship. And that's what drives the whole train. You know, uh, the word evangelical is a word that has gone through a lot of derision recently. And some people want to cast it aside for a variety of reasons. One of the problems with the word evangelical is that it can mean so many different things to people, right? And so you're labeled in ways that you wish to avoid, but you can't. And when you think of the word evangelical, you kind of try to figure out a way to define it anyway. Theologians have done that for a long time. What what do we mean when we say we're evangelical? Sometimes along the way, we've just wanted to drop it. I never will. I'm going to hang on to it for the rest of my life. And if need be, I'll just have to explain it over and over again. And I'll just have to redefine it for my world. And in order to do that, I've got to be reductionistic. 
There's lots of things that evangelical means. But for me, the heart of the evangelical gospel is right here. Paul puts it this way. Whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing. It's a deeply intimate, personal word of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I might gain Christ and be found in Him. Not having a righteousness of my own, but one that comes from faith in Jesus Christ, not from the law. The righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. And I want to know Christ. Hear the word again? No. It's a word that is used in the Old Testament to describe the intimacy between Adam and Eve when they knew one another intimately. The children were conceived. I want to know Christ and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in His sufferings Becoming like Him in His death. And so somehow to attain to the resurrection of the dead. I want to know Christ. I don't want to know about Him. I don't want to pontificate concerning particular attributes. Oh, I'll do that. But it's all linked to knowing Him. To knowing my Savior and my Lord. To me, it's at the heart of my understanding of what it means to be evangelical. The good news concerning Jesus Christ that my reality has been transferred to His reality. That my sins have been transferred to Him. That the law has no power over me because I couldn't fulfill it anyway. And that through faith in Jesus Christ, I've been forgiven. And nothing else is worth anything. It's all garbage compared to knowing Jesus Christ, my Savior, my Lord. I want to know Christ. And Paul says, I know what that means. It means knowing Him and the fellowship of His sufferings. Right here and right now, it means knowing Him and the power of His resurrection right here and right now. Being raised in newness of life right here and right now. And it means knowing Him in such a way that I long to be with Him for eternity. That's the heart of what it means for me to be a follower of Christ what I call an evangelical Christian. I think it's interesting that 
knowing Christ Jesus, your Lord, in this way does not eliminate the complexities of life. It doesn't. Knowing Christ Jesus, your Lord, in this way does not give you all the answers for life. Let's not go there, friends. Let's not pretend that knowing Christ Jesus means we have all the answers. Knowing Christ Jesus means we have the answer, which is Christ Jesus. And there's all kinds of things we don't know that we take by faith. And there's all kinds of mistakes that we make, factual errors and sinful errors that are covered by His grace. It doesn't mean all the complexities are dissolved. It doesn't mean we get all the answers. It means we get Christ. We get His companionship as we walk and for eternity. I had a friend one time who um, described a visit that um, he had in a hospital. Uh, his friend was dying. He was a rather young man, and it was clear he wasn't going home. And my friend said, um, when I got there, I was asking him questions and talking incessantly because I was nervous. He said, I was buzzing around the hospital room. Can I do this? Can I do this? What you might... He said, my friend, with pretty salty language, which I will edit, said to me, just shut up, sit down, and hold my hand. He didn't need medicine. He didn't need the answers. Need the comfort and the presence of a friend. That's what it means to know Christ. It means that He walks with you. And if you take that as your ultimate meaning in life, everything is redefined. Even the things that you think are facts, they're different. Even the things you call events, they change. Not because they're absolutely different, but because Christ is with you in them. And all of them are reoriented around the eternal perspective of Jesus Christ your Lord. You know, you can do a lot in life. You can make money. You can find fame and prestige. You can get everything you want. But if you don't have Jesus, you've got nothing. And if you have Jesus, no matter what your circumstances, you have everything. That's what Paul wants us to remember. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. I hope that's true for you. Um, I would imagine for most of you it is. But if it's not, it can be true. You know that? 
It's interesting that Brian played that hymn, Just As I Am Without One Plea. Where I grew up, that used to be an invitation hymn. And we'd sing it over and over again. And I just want to read it. And I want to remind you that any day at ECC is an invitation to receive Christ. And I'm happy to talk to you about it following this worship service. Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou bidst me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come. Just as I am in waiting not to rid my soul of one dark blot, to thee whose blood can cleanse each spot, O Lamb of God, and I come. Just as I am, though tossed about, with many a conflict and many a doubt. (laughs) Don't you love that? Tossed about with conflict and doubt. Lord Jesus, I'm tossed about with conflict and doubt. I'm not even sure I understand who you are, but... O Lamb of God, I come. Just as I am poor, wretched, blind, sight riches healing of the mind, the all I need in Thee I find, O Lamb of God, I come. Just as I am, Thou wilt receive with welcome pardon, cleanse, relief, Because thy promise, I believe. O Lamb of God, I come. Can I shift the metaphor around from the hospital room? You're in the bed. You're fretting and worrying. You're worked up about life. And Jesus says, Just be quiet and take my hand. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, you've been so good to us. You've been kind to us in the sending of your son, Jesus Christ. You've been remarkable to us in giving us the revelation of your word so that we can know what it means for you to be sent. It's not just a legend. It's it's explained. And it's explained out of the life of saints like Paul and thousands of others who have followed him who've experienced a heart set free in the midst of life because they've gotten to the place that they can really say, I, I want to know Christ more than anything else. I want to know Christ and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of sharing and His suffering so that somehow I might retain, uh, obtain to uh, the resurrection of the dead. Lord, we thank You for this life. It's wonderful. It's beautiful. 
our relationships are beautiful, but it's just a shadow of the beauty you have in store for us. And we don't even know what it is. You give us images which are beautiful, but incomprehensible, like streets of gold and a city that has no night. But you also um, give us some words that are very tangible. They remind us of the reality that we experience right now. And they tell us that you're going to redefine that reality. That someday you're going to make everything new. So whatever decays will be made new. You tell us that someday you're going to wipe every tear from our eyes. That there will be no more sadness or sorrow or conflict or or any of those things that trouble our spirit. The doubt that so easily besets us will be gone because we'll be in your presence. There will be no more pain or sorrow or suffering or sickness or death. Because the ever-living Son of God who has given us a foretaste of eternal life, will give us the fountain of life forever. We thank you for that, Lord. And and until that day comes, help us to reflect that reality in our decisions next week. Help us as we are practical about what we do to keep our head down and up at the same time if possible, doing the thing we know we're called to and looking up and thanking you for the eternal perspective that reminds us that you have everything under your control. And Lord, as we make decisions, they're often very, very hard. Will you just give us peace? Put our hearts in the right place to seek you and seek you alone. And then help us to make decisions and give us peace. And when you do, we'll know that's your presence. We'll know that's you holding our hands and saying, follow me. And we thank you for that promise. In the name of Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen.